The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. We all know the legendary Kentucky of mint juleps, my old Kentucky home, the Kentucky Derby, the most southern state that did not join the Confederacy. We also know, if you're listening to this program, that Kentucky was a Union state during the war, divided between Union and Confederate soldiers in almost equal numbers. But we perhaps don't know as much as we think about why they fought for each side. For slavery, certainly uh, for the South. But what about Kentucky Unionists? We'll see a new angle on that story this evening with our guest Patrick Lewis, author of For Slavery and Union, Benjamin Buckner and Kentucky Loyalties in the Civil War, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you as is true most Wednesday evenings from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University here in Greenville, North Carolina, part of the UNC system where University of North Carolina is represented in various basketball tournaments. Alas, not the Pirates this year. The Pirate women did get into the NIT but uh, have been eliminated from that, so we're not going to talk any 
basketball or other sports tonight, just move straight back into our uh, Civil War discussion, which is what we're here to do. Uh, except first, of course, it's spring. It's getting warm. Uh, it's, a, it's still light out as the show begins this evening. And with spring comes planning for the uh, fall semester, planning the courses for next year. And that means making budgets for next year, figuring out which uh, faculty can be uh, hired or fired. I hear there's sheets of paper dashing out of the printer right now. We're constantly at work here in the history department at ECU. And so that means it's spring academic administration complaining season. And I know listeners have all been eager to hear more of that. No, I know you're not. Uh, but I cannot resist pointing out the, uh, the, the challenges that continue to face higher education here in North Carolina, elsewhere in America. Today I found out uh, in addition to two retirements, uh, we also have one resignation, and we're not getting any of those positions back for the fall. So we will teach the same courses, actually more students next year than last, with three fewer historians on hand, and there's no uh, end in sight. This is because we're planning for a 2% cut from the state legislature, state government uh, this summer, and... 2% to the system by the time it gets down to the department should be about 12%. And so we'll lose 12% of our faculty. Uh, it'll be the fifth year of cuts in a row, and we'll just keep going. But I will say it's our fault to a large extent. Uh, as people who teach history, we, or anything in the academy, we have not done a good job uh, making our story known. We tell people, oh, I've got a three-course load this semester, and people think you work three hours a week, or maybe nine hours a week. They realize the class meets three times. And they think, oh, you have nine hours of work a week? What is it? But the same people don't think a surgeon does operations 40 hours a week, or that a lawyer spends 40 hours a week in the courtroom, or that a football player plays 40 games a week, uh, 41-hour games. No, all these people spend many hours preparing for the uh, the actual execution of their highest uh, duties, and we do the same thing. We, If we teach nine, it means we're preparing another 18, and then we're also, also doing research and uh, administrative work on top of that. So uh, when I leave the office at 8.30 tonight after another 13-hour day, I don't think I'll run into any state legislators out in the parking lot getting in their cars. Uh, and if I sound annoyed uh, at hearing today, I've just lost three more colleagues. Yes, I am. Uh, and I'll, I'll swallow that, suppress that, move on back into the 19th century where people had real problems. Uh, slavery, civil war, disunion. Uh, it makes our troubles seem petty. And I, I feel better already just thinking about the horrors of the 19th century. That didn't come out right, but you know what I mean. So... What about the Civil War era? Lots going on there. You can find out what we're talking about here on the show from www.impedimentsofwar.org. You can go to the Impediments of War Facebook page or the website. Mark Gaffney maintains them, tells you who's on the show. You can find out there that next week, April 1st, 
Is that right already? Yes, April Fool's Day coming up. Uh, Julianne Bone Mahegan will be with us to talk about the memoir of an ancestor. It's called Record of a Soldier in the Late War, the Confederate Memoir of John Wesley Bone. Should be interesting uh, primary source material. We'll have somebody with us on April 8th, not sure yet, uh, still uh, up in the air on that. But then more guests in the weeks that follow. John Fox, author of uh, Stewart's Ride, will be with us to discuss uh, Jeb Stewart and his ride around the Federal Army. Then on uh, April 22nd, Adam Dean has a new book that involves agriculture and the Civil War, but a lot more than that. It's it's a, a novel and interesting approach, which we'll, I look forward to sharing with you. On the 29th, Matt Hulbert is editor, co-editor of a new book on guerrilla warfare in the Civil War. Certainly want to talk about that. And then on May 6th, as we get to the end of the academic year, Tom Parson uh, from the Corinth Civil War Interpretive Center will join us. Uh, his book, uh, uh, well, We'll tell you about it when we get there, but uh, uh, lots of new interesting stuff uh, as we look at the Western Theater with, uh, with Tom Parson on May 6th. So lots going on. Uh, some of those, uh, Tom, for example, uh, are invited directly due to suggestions from listeners, so your suggestions are always welcome. Please send them in freely, and I'm happy to consult them and use them, and uh We'll go from there. Sometimes uh, there are even people who let me know of their own new work that occasionally happens, and that too can lead to interesting guests. Always welcome to have people doing that. Well, tonight's guest is a new author, uh, Patrick A. Lewis, assistant editor of the Register of the Kentucky Historical Society and the Civil War Governors of Kentucky Digital Documentary Edition. Uh, in fact, uh, director now of the Civil War Governors Project at the Kentucky Historical Society. Uh, he is also the author of For Slavery and Union, Benjamin Buckner and Kentucky Loyalties in the Civil War. Uh, if you were listening last week, if you're listening to these shows in order, we had an interesting book about South Carolina that talked about the complexities of Confederate memory and, and feeling in that state. Uh, and tonight we're going to look at the complexities, but also a thesis of almost breathtaking uh, uh, clarity uh, on the state of Kentucky. And for that, let us talk to uh, Dr. Patrick A. Lewis. Uh, Dr. Lewis, are you there? I certainly am. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on. Uh, 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 you and I have not had a chance to, to meet yet, uh, but if we could go by first names, that'll speed things up. Do you go by Patrick, Pat? Patrick, yeah. Mm-hmm. Patrick it is, and uh, please call me Jerry. Uh, well, Patrick, you are director of the Civil War uh, Governors Project in Kentucky, the Kentucky Historical Society. What is that project? Uh, we are very excited about uh, about that. Um, this is uh, one of KHS's Kentucky Historical Society's uh, sesquicentennial initiatives, um, and the uh, the idea, very simply, um, it's simply stated, but uh, but harder in execution, uh, is to collect every piece of paper uh, sent to or from one of Kentucky's Civil War governors, uh, be they the three Union governors or the two provisional Confederate governors. Uh, from uh, from November of 1860 through December of 1865, 
the goal with those is to uh, is to locate them wherever they may be in the country or in the world, um, to uh, digitally image them, transcribe them, uh, and annotate them, and then build a, a massive research database and website uh, so that any uh, user, be they uh, graduate student or professional historian, uh, K-12 teacher and the like, uh, can access them and have uh, have. Uh, Unrestricted access to uh, to what we're now anticipating is going to be around forty thousand Civil War era documents. Well, it sounds like a fascinating project. Uh, it, I remember when the the Legal Papers of Abraham Lincoln project started back in the nineteen eighties. They anticipated uh, I, I don't know something like that, maybe forty or fifty thousand pages. No, nothing like that. Maybe maybe less than that even. Mm-hmm. And they ended up with. Um, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of documents. Say <laughs> they they're still doing it today. To put it that uh, way, yeah, right? they, yeah. And and though these projects tend to grow, we anticipated that we would find. And I remember our, our initial grant applications a few years ago uh, said that we we hope to find about twenty or twenty five thousand items. Uh, we have found twenty three thousand uh, in scope items, and we have not left the city of Frankfurt. So this is only in Kentucky official you know state collections. Um, we've not gone to, uh, to to University of Kentucky, University of Louisville, Filson Historical, um, or or the the big halls that will be in D.C. at the National Archives and Library of Congress. So our numbers will soon explode. Well, that that's an exciting prospect. Uh, tell me a bit about your background. Uh, what mm-hmm. what got you interested in Civil War era history? Oh wow! Um, I grew up in Western Kentucky, uh, in in Trigg County, which is just across the state line from Fort Donelson. Uh, so I, uh, I grew up climbing all over the earthworks there, and uh, and started to, to reenact out there, and got the bug for for public interpretation. Um, so after uh, after I graduated from college, I uh, was very fortunate to go work at uh, at Chickamauga and Chattanooga National Military Park with uh, with Jim Ogden and uh, mm-hmm. and Lee White, uh, Daryl Black, uh, Keith Bohannon from West Georgia was up there all the time. It was a fantastic uh, crew of historians up there. Um, that uh, that got me uh, bit by the bug for uh, for really good social histories of Civil War soldiers, and uh, and so that's what I uh, went to grad school to to do, and found my way eventually to uh, to Ben Buckner through that route. And so you got your doctorate at University of Kentucky. Uh, looking at your CV, you got done in, in pretty brisk time. <laughs> yeah, uh, a lot of us took six, seven, eight years, and, and you managed to, uh, to do it in a little bit more reasonable uh, time. Uh, so how did you come across uh, Benjamin Buckner? Uh, who is Benjamin Buckner, and where did you find him? Sure. Um, he is, uh, uh, during the war, he's the major of the 20th Kentucky Infantry. Um, he'll, he'll resign that post uh, in, in 1863, as we'll see later on. I came at him not through uh, the Civil War itself, but I found him in Reconstruction. Um, uh, going back to Chickamauga, uh, a lot of the work that we had been doing there was um, very much influenced by uh, Ken No and Joe Glathar, um, you know, finding really detailed demographic data on, on Confederate soldiers, and Ancestry.com had just uh, come out, and we were making great use of that to, uh, to, to compile some statistical profiles of, uh, of Confederate companies so we could better understand the men we were talking about, who these people are. Um, what what percentage of of them are slave owners or their fathers are slave owners and the like and uh, and so I was looking with that background I was looking for a research project um, 
uh, at UK and and found uh, that uh, that Kentucky's state militia came out during uh, during Reconstruction uh, to participate in in paramilitary racial violence. Um, so. Uh, while the Klan is running uh, rampant in the in the countrysides, they can't operate very well in the cities uh, and towns in particular. So uh, after the 15th Amendment uh, in 1870, which is the first time that black men in Kentucky could vote because the, the state was in, in the hands of, uh, of, of uh, pro-slavery Democrats or once pro-slavery Democrats who are very hostile uh, to African-American suffrage. Um, so, uh, so the... African Americans can vote for the first time in 1870, and uh, and and Ben Buckner and a few other men in Lexington hatched the idea of of raising militia companies uh, that will come out and patrol the polls and and stop supposed riots, uh, in quotes, and, uh, and and basically harass black men while they try and vote. And that happens from 1870 uh, right through 1873. Um, but the the thing that fascinated me about this was being state militia. Uh, they are officially enrolled, and uh, and so uh, here at uh, at the, the old state arsenal, the National Guard still has those muster rolls. So I had uh, named lists of men who participated in in paramilitary racial violence. Ben Buckner being the head of them, uh, as he is he first raises one of these companies, and then as Lexington evolves and has a, a full battalion of of three infantry companies and two cavalry companies, um, he commands the lot uh, there in the county. And uh, and so I was uh, I looked up all of those fellows in the 1870 census and whatever uh, other sources I could find and and was uh, trying to sort of see what the Klan doesn't let us see um, because you know the, the the hoods and the secrecy don't exactly give you a, a clean roster to look at who's mm-hmm. who's committing those acts. But with so, the militia, you've got that, mm-hmm. and and of course uh, the logical conclusion you would draw. Uh, the listener would draw hearing about Buckner's career uh, as as a, a militia leader uh, suppressing black voting in the 1870s is uh, he must have served in the war as well certainly as a uh, Confederate officer but we know from perhaps the title of your book he was a Union officer in the war and this is a chance for our audience to uh, take a collective moment to grasp how this must have worked. We'll take a short break and think about it ourselves as well. Come back in just a moment. We're talking this evening with Patrick A. Lewis, author of For Slavery and Union, Benjamin Buckner and Kentucky Loyalties in the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at VoiceAmericaTRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN or follow along with us at VoiceAmericaTRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking this evening with Patrick A. Lewis, author of For Slavery and Union, Benjamin Buckner and Kentucky Loyalties in the Civil War. We learned in the first segment about uh, Benjamin Buckner's post-war career as a uh, Kentucky uh, public figure, politician, eventually judge, uh, who also led, uh, organized and led Kentucky uh, militia units that were employed to uh, intimidate and suppress African-American voters uh, in the cities, places where, uh, uh, as Patrick, as you noted, the, the Ku Klux Klan could not very well operate openly in the midst of a, a city and crowds of people. They thrive on anonymity. But the militia, uh, openly uniformed and, and theoretically legal, could do just that and could uh, enforce uh, white-only elections. And this leads to the uh, obvious supposition that uh, Buckner must have been a pro-slavery uh, rebel during the war, but that's what makes this book so interesting. Uh, well, he's a, he's a Union officer. How how did that come to be? In '61, that uh, that the Confederacy is a terrible idea. Uh, that by seceding and inviting the inevitable war that will come after secession, uh, the rebels are inviting the doom of slavery by bringing Union armies down there. They will uh, they will disturb the fragile. Uh, balance that held the slaves in bondage, and uh, and whether through uh, through government uh, intervention or not, or through the the agency of the slaves themselves, uh, slavery is in grave peril. Um, so, uh, instead, uh, Buckner's goal uh, and the goal of most Kentucky Unionists uh, going into 1861 is uh, is to. Uh, side with uh, with the northern states uh, and and join the Union coalition, uh, defeat the rebellion as quickly as possible, uh, and restore the uh, uh, the rebel states back to their rightful positions in Congress, where they can uh, they can exercise the, the 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 southern veto on any Republican anti-slavery legislation that may or may not be coming down the line, uh, and so they're fighting uh, they're fighting the, uh, the the rebels in the field, yes. But hoping, 
uh, not to invite a total war, hoping to uh, to retain a limited war, and and also then fighting the clock back in Washington, as they know that the Republican majority Congress is going to uh, is going to start encroaching on slavery as the war goes on and on and on. You know, as you described their 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 position, it makes perfect sense uh, throughout that that these Kentucky slaveholders would be as, as strongly pro-Union as they are because for them, unlike the, the slaveholders in the Deep South, the Union is the guarantor of slavery. That if, if you have an independent uh, confederacy with uh, and Kentucky secedes and joins it, now mm-hmm. the, the slaves who escape, instead of crossing the Ohio River and Northerners are bound by the Fugitive Slave Act to return them and Kentucky slave hunters can go north and uh, go to court and, and or just kidnap mm-hmm. their, their their former uh, bonded people. If suddenly that's an international border, mm-hmm. then the Ohio River is going to be lined with Ohio militia, telling the Kentucky slave hunters they can uh, <laughs> take a hike. Uh, anyone Absolutely. who gets across the river is permanently free. Absolutely, so for, and and that's only the most prominent danger and the most mm-hmm. uh, and the most pressing one. There are also economic concerns. Uh, you know, the railroad connections that Kentucky has built north across the Ohio uh, are far more extensive than the ones going down south. Uh, so, so all of the, the products that Kentucky slaves are producing, be they, be they horses and mules or be they uh, tobacco and grain, like all of that is going north across the Ohio River. So you're losing your, your uh, easiest market. Uh, now in the in the you know the post railroaded eighteen uh, fifties, um, and then Kentuckians are also very concerned about uh, the political situation in the Confederacy. Kentucky uh, had long been a Whig state. Uh, Henry Clay, John Crittenden, um, are are the pillars of yeah. So um, they're very concerned, looking southward at uh, at joining a, uh, a a Confederacy dominated by Democrats. Um, who they uh, had 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 long, of course, uh, partisan uh, feuds over the past uh, few decades. Though the Whig Party no longer exists, it's uh, it's still very much alive in the John Bell Constitutional Union Party, and and in fact the Union Party, um, so-called, um, in in Kentucky in 1861 through through the end of the war, it's it's fundamentally a group of old Whigs. Um, and well, then let me ask you about the Whig concerned. Party. Uh, me just ask, but the, the Whig Party, you point out, is not just a political yes. – Whiggery is not just a political idea. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, this, is, this is Daniel Walker Howe um, coming through. Uh, Kentuckians very much believed, and, and Whiggish Kentuckians especially, uh, believed in the sort of uh, moderation and, uh, and restraint uh, that embodied a modern man. Um, they, they, they believed that Whig Party policy very much uh, encouraged this rather than the, uh, the sort of uh, rash emotionalism of, uh, of, of Democrats. They, uh, they, they looked to, in Kentucky, of course, Henry Clay is, is the icon, um, uh, as both a moral man, as a master, uh, who, is, who is, of course, um, perceived as uh, as kindly and benevolent towards his slaves, you know, even in, dabbling in uh, uh, in colonization, though never really following through on that, um, 
and uh, and then also uh, standing out as political moderates, right? Uh, negotiating compromise after compromise to keep the country together. And, and uh, the majority of Kentuckians in 1861 try and assume that mantle again. We did Crittenden and his famous uh, amendments, but Kentuckians are also proposing uh, conference after conference and meeting after meeting uh, to try and, and bring some sort of reconciliation before uh, before shooting starts. Um, so they, they very much adopt that. And this is in contrast, like you say, to the the democratic emotionalism, Andrew Jackson style of leadership, uh, the the big talking, the expansionism, all the things that that moderate Kentuckians uh, disapprove of. Mm -hmm. But everybody gets this in a high school textbook, the Crittenden Compromise, the idea, well, this is the border state, they're between North and South, they're half for slavery, half for freedom. but your point throughout this book is no, they're all for slavery. Right. It's just a different way of going about it, and it's a different and it's a it's a slightly different way of slavery in Kentucky as well. Um, you know, being uh, being slightly further north, Kentucky's soils are different. Its crops are different. It does not grow cotton uh, in the bluegrass uh, region around Lexington, where where Buckner is from. Uh, hemp and livestock and grain are the main crops. And, and all of those crops do not require, as you said, expansionism, right? They're not going to, to, de, to, to deplete the soil in the same way that tobacco and cotton are. They're not going to need a new frontier in, uh, in, in a decade uh, to continue to be profitable. Um, hemp and livestock, through their, their, their various um, waste products, uh, actually improve the ground. So, uh, so masters like Henry Clay... Um, and uh, and men like Buckner's grandfather, who uh, who owns a, a profitable hemp and uh, and uh, courting business, um, can continue to farm the same pieces of ground over and over and over, and have no need to expand into the territories. And so Kentuckians look at uh, at this this uh, the the various uh, political fights over expanding slavery uh, after the Mexican War, and and. Uh, and see no point in fighting them. They're perfectly content to uh, to take Lincoln's bargain that he's offering in 1861 um, of an unamendable amendment uh, to keep slavery perpetual where it exists now. That would suit them just fine. So their their view of slavery is different. They perceive the threats to slavery differently. Uh, they they despise the rash emotionalism of the rebels, and they want to go to war, and they're willing to to go to war to preserve the Union, which will preserve the institution of slavery for them, as it has done through uh, Dred Scott back to the Fugitive Slave Act and the Compromise of 1850 and, and back to the 1820 and the Constitution. Every, every compromise benefits slavery in some way, so it makes perfect sense that, that Buckner decides to join. Uh, you also make a, a lot of, of Buckner's uh, romance with his, his fiance and how this affects his decision to enlist. Could you talk about that? This is particularly fascinating, and, and this sort of, uh, the, the letters between he and his fiance and then later wife, Helen, uh, sort of become the, the backdrop for the first uh, few chapters of the book. Um, he is constantly trying to negotiate uh, a, an engagement and a marriage uh, with uh, with Helen Martin. She's the daughter of uh, of the the most prominent farmer in the county, uh, very well connected uh, man who had, whose father had come over with Daniel Boone, um, very well established in land and slaves, has a profitable livestock farm, and then also is invested uh, very heavily. Um, through a uh, through a son-in-law in an iron operation in a neighboring county uh, run by a mixed force of, of free and enslaved labor. 
Um, so he is, he's sort of the epitome of this diversified Kentucky um, uh, slave economy. Um, and Buckner's uh, family had had a rough decade leading up to, uh, to the Civil War. Uh, they had been very prosperous, but the hemp economy busted in the 1840s. And, uh, and so they had sort of been struggling to, uh, to, to uh, keep appearances up. Um, and, uh, and so Buckner's always trying to prove himself to his future in-laws. Uh, and so in doing that, he, he constantly has to, his correspondence before the war and then also during the war, he has to constantly be selling himself. Uh, to uh, to both Helen, his his fiance, and then also his his very very skeptical in laws. It's, it's uh, a very human story. Yes, absolutely, and 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 makes uh, very fine reading. And and I will freely admit that I cribbed some lines from him uh, when I was uh, uh, I was courting my own wife. Um, he the, the man can write very well. <laughs> But now, um, uh, yeah. the, the but the irony, of course, is that he's going to go to war against the Confederacy uh, while courting this slaveholding family's daughter. Yes, and and they are they are ardent secessionists. Um, yes. and and Helen herself is an ardent secessionist. The unfortunate part of this correspondence uh, is we only have Buckner's side of it. We don't have the letters that Helen was sending back to him. I don't know why uh, they weren't saved, but uh, or uh, one way or the other, we only have his half of the correspondence. But uh, in that great 19th century style, he, he sort of echoes her questions back uh, before he answers them. And so intermingled in these negotiations about uh, the, the power relationships and the gender relationships uh, within their own future household, uh, they're, they're both using these metaphors of how they conceive of the national union and of federal government power. Um, even as, uh, as Buckner has, has joined the Union Army uh, and uh, is out in the field, uh, and, and Helen will occasionally uh, lose her tongue and, and, and write something uh, a little bit sharp and rebellious to him, and then she'll, she'll apparently apologize. And he says, no, 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 you don't have to, uh, to apologize to me. I'm not uh, here to do your thinking for you. Um, I, just, you know, I just want uh, you to, to uh, know that you're free. Uh, to to think what you want, as long as you remain under the implicit power of uh, of me as the head of the household. He has a few um, lines about wife management in there, <laughs> and in the same way, he's thinking about uh, how the federal government has to manage the the unruly states, um, and uh, and how he never wants to uh, to be heavy-handed to force them uh, into doing anything he wants. He just wants to gently cajole them. Uh, into uh, into remaining one big happy family to not uh, erupt when a uh, a dispute happens uh, and uh, and and break the, the household up, uh, but to remain together, compromise, uh, and find a way through uh, any any storms that may arise. So the the, the parallel between say the management of the home, the husband's authority over the wife, and the management of the nation, the federal government's authority over the. Uh, the states in this case is is a, a clear parallel and a fascinating one as, as he expresses it. The problem uh, comes with the the scene you you portray at the beginning of your description of the war when he uh, leaves he and the twentieth Kentucky leave their home ground and uh, encounter uh, the real war, the, uh, the scenes of devastation. The disrespect of private property and of individuals that he had—he was fighting against that happening, uh, but there's no escaping it. 
No, there's absolutely not. And it, and it comes so quickly is the shocking thing. Uh, they're, they're transferred out to western Kentucky where they're, they're sent to, uh, uh, to counter the, the Confederate moves up to Columbus. And, uh, and immediately they get some recruits from western Kentucky, all of whom had come from uh, a sort of hodgepodge of counties. They had, they had uh, been driven out of their home by rebels. Um, a lot of them had had their, their uh, houses destroyed, their slaves confiscated to go work on, on rebel uh, fortifications, Fort Donaldson, uh, Fort Henry being uh, the most prominent among them. Um, their, their families are living huddled in caves along the Ohio River um, in, in the driving winter of 1861-62. And, uh, and these people are, uh, are out for blood against the, uh, the rebels who have, uh, who have destroyed their livelihoods. And, and this is exactly what Buckner feared. He, he feared most uh, a war between slave holders that would destroy the institution. And there we have it. Um, so not only are the the uh, the, the passionate, fiery, hot-headed, um, unstable rebels doing precisely what he imagined them to, of course, uh, but Union men are sinking to their level. Uh, and if Union men, Kentuckians, and slaveholders can sink to their level, then what, good God, what will the uh, the, the the nasty Republicans do once they send their their northern troops in blue coats down here? And he's terrified from. Uh, from the the very beginning of his service, the uh, the irony that that one sees in his letters when he is stationed, for example, in in Nashville and has to encounter uh, Confederate civilians there who just see his blue coat and assume, mm-hmm. well, here's another Lincoln hireling. Uh, he just wants to scream, "No, I'm a slaveholder too. I'm on yeah. your side. <laughs> really, I'm on your side. I'm just fighting against you." Uh, it, it's it's it, I won't say one feels sympathy for him necessarily, but there's a certain amount of understanding oh, with his plight. Uh, My well, favorite anecdote along yes. those lines, he's uh, on the road to Nashville, still in Kentucky, uh, and rides up to the, the house of an old man. There, there are a few slaves in the yard, and the, uh, the, the old uh, master of the house comes out and, and hushes, you know, hurries the slaves back inside before the, the, uh, the Yankees steal them. Uh, away and and Buckner's about to protest and he's about to say exactly that and make this plea and say I'm one of you don't don't hate me uh, and then he turns around and uh, and sees uh, a couple of uh, uh, squads of some other regiments in his brigade going into the old man's cabbage patch uh, and he turns his horse around and says well he probably deserved that anyway <laughs> and there go the cabbages uh, in in the in my own research on the Army of the Ohio, and, and other people have found the same thing, one of the striking uh, developments of the first couple of years of the war is the radicalization of Union soldiers uh, from the upper Midwest, most of whom had never seen an African-American uh, before in, in person, and who had no emotional uh, uh, connection for or against slavery. They might have emotionally, they might have intellectually opposed it, or mostly they didn't care. Uh, but as the Army of the Ohio goes through Kentucky, through uh, Tennessee, and these men encounter slavery for the first time, they become radicalized and they become uh, anti-slavery, not necessarily pro-slave, but but anti-slavery. Yeah. And 
we're going to take a short break, but I want to come back and ask you about that because that's a very different process from the process that uh, Benjamin Buckner undergoes. And uh, we can maybe compare what these uh, fellow soldiers in the Army of the Ohio experience. We'll do that when we come right back. We're going to take another short break. We're talking today with Patrick A. Lewis, author of For Slavery and Union, Benjamin Buckner and Kentucky Loyalties in the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking this evening with Patrick A. Lewis, author of for Slavery and Union, Benjamin Buckner and Kentucky Loyalties in the Civil War. We've been talking about uh, uh, Benjamin Buckner, officer in the 20th Kentucky Union Regiment uh, in the first years of the war and how he and many other uh, Unionists of Kentucky joined the Federal Army to suppress the rebellion, not to end slavery, but to preserve it. They saw the Union government, the Federal government, as the best guarantor of slavery and secession and rebellion as inviting the disorder that would end slavery. So uh, they are fighting their uh, fellow slaveholders uh, over different means to preserve the institution, neither one trying to fight against it. And uh, at the end of the, the segment, I was just mentioning the idea of how exposure to slavery radicalized many northern soldiers and turned them into uh, anti-slavery uh, voters after the war and, and uh, supporters of emancipation once they realized how much this was helping the Confederate cause or to a lesser extent how uh, human the slaves were and how, uh, how outrageous slavery actually was. 
Buckner has does not take that same journey, does he? No, quite the opposite, in fact. Uh, no, he talk, uh, yeah. as uh, as as the war goes on, and this comes to a head really um, in the the 1862 Kentucky campaign that culminates with the Battle of Perryville. As you have, as you said, this radicalized uh, Army of the Ohio coming back up into Kentucky, chasing Braxton Bragg, uh, and then you have uh, newly raised Union regiments. Uh, coming down uh, into Kentucky for the first time to uh, uh, to first protect Louisville and then drive the uh, uh, the rebels out of the state. Um, you have all of these Union troops who have become very hostile uh, to the institution of slavery and fed up with trying to conciliate uh, slave owners, be they rebel or Union, because they're tired of trying to tell the difference. Um, and so uh, Kentucky slave owners, uh, like Buckner, the, the, the ones who, are, who had not joined the Army, who are still at home, um, uh, are furious. And this is also in the context of, of the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation being on the table uh, and, and that, that deadline, that race against the clock that Buckner and these other Unionists had been uh, running since, since the beginning of the war. They can now see uh, defeat looming. Uh, that that the Republicans, in fact, uh, are going to uh, going to start taking very concrete steps against slavery. There's a remarkable vignette where you uh, describe how local Kentuckians being outraged at these these Northerners in their midst, lo- loyal Kentuckians, mm-hmm. uh, are are mobilizing. Uh, the, you describe the 92nd Illinois Regiment uh, mm-hmm. marching into a town. And almost engaging in battle with the Kentucky Union Regiment. With the 14th Kentucky, not only that, but in the streets of Winchester, in Buckner's hometown, uh, this is this has taken place. The the, the uh, Illinoisans are met with uh, with fixed bayonets and officers with revolvers drawn. Um, so hostilities are are very uh, likely, um, and things are very tense here. Um, and then as the uh, uh, the, the, the campaign ends. Buckner's hopes really are dashed. He had this, he had dreams of military glory, right? This is exactly what he wanted, uh, to culminate his glorious war, uh, a battle to defend Kentucky from the, the invading, uh, foe. Uh, but of course, uh, like most of the Union Army, he doesn't get engaged at Perryville. Um, and, uh, and the, uh, the campaign ends very anticlimactically. The, his brigade is sent to destroy assault works in eastern Kentucky that the rebels had been making uh, very fine use of. This salt works, ironically, uh, owned by a very vehemently uh, pro-slavery uh, Union officer uh, named T.T. Garrett, uh, who, who later says that this was the moment at which he wished that he would never have, uh, have picked up his sword for the Union cause after uh, Union soldiers destroyed his, uh, his salt operation uh, run by slaves. So Buckner, instead of defending slavery and defending Kentucky, ends up uh, participating in its, in its destruction, and he's absolutely disgusted. And this is the time he decides to put his sword down. Absolutely, he does, along with uh, what seems like a very large number of Kentucky officers. Now, this is the part where things get very murky, because it's only through private correspondence like this that we get this sense of uh, about how the level of, of uh, anger uh, among Kentucky officers who, of course, have the option to resign. Uh, desertions peak at this time, too, among enlisted men uh, in Kentucky regiments, but whether that's because they're closer to home than they have been in six months uh, or because of political discontent, well, you can't really tell. Um, but Buckner writes of repeated meetings as the Army is moving back into Middle Tennessee at the beginning of the uh, the Murfreesboro campaign uh, between uh, 
Kentucky officers all across the Army getting together and, uh, and, and deciding what they'll do, writing secret letters back, uh, back to friends at home and the government in Frankfurt to, uh, to get advice uh, and, and seek political help. Uh, Tom Crittenden, uh, Corps commander, is, uh, is uh, key amongst these negotiations between the Kentucky officers and Rosecrans. Uh, and there is, uh, it seems... Uh, in uh, in uh, December 1862, that uh, a very large number of Kentucky officers uh, and enlisted men might walk away. Well, if they, I mean, there are. This does happen uh, not just from Kentucky, but other Midwestern states. Mm-hmm. There are some mass resignations. But as you point out, this conflicts with Buckner's desire to win military glory and win the hand of Helen. Absolutely. Uh, if he resigns from the army, won't he go home as a coward? Yes, this is is, is constantly on his mind, and and there's this, this one day where he gets um, he gets two letters, one from his mother and one from his father, and his father says, "We would be disgraced if you left. Both you and I would be ruined and could never practice in 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 the town again." And his mother says, "Absolutely not. Your duty as a man and a husband and a and a father, uh, and and implicitly also as a master, uh, demand that you come home." Uh, and and this Buckner is really convinced um, of his mother's argument ultimately because of what he fears might happen uh, as uh, as uh, slaves in Kentucky get wind of emancipation uh, further south. He he predicts the standard litany of of uprisings and race war and the like. Um, and he is uh, he 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 believes that he's going home, leaving the Union Army uh, to protect his future family uh, from uh, uh, from the black peril that may come after emancipation. That's interesting. That conflict among soldiers is one that is maybe more familiar in the Civil War when we think of Lee's army in the lines of Petersburg, mm-hmm. and the soldiers there getting get uh, getting messages sent from Georgia, uh, wives and mothers saying, "Sherman's here. Uh, your duty as a man, as mm-hmm. a husband and father, is is to come home and protect us." But their duty is also to uh, their comrades, to their government, uh, to their officers, to Robert E. Lee, mm-hmm. and they're terribly conflicted. And here we have a Union officer uh, uh, experiencing the same kind of direct conflict. What is what is the highest loyalty of an individual uh, to be a good man, to be a good soldier, to be a good wife or a good, a good uh, husband to his wife, uh, a good Absolutely. father? It, it, it's uh, Again, without sympathizing with Buckner, who, after all, is uh, <laughs> trying to keep people in bondage, uh, it is possible to recognize these these uh, uh, these human uh, claims on all mm-hmm. sides of him, and perhaps to enjoy it because he's he's <laughs> his, his cause is ultimately bad. So you don't have to feel too bad sure. about his his plight. Um, so he, so he does resign. He he, he goes does home. Resign. Uh, what what happens next? Um, well, then he uh, he he sits out uh, more or less the last two years of the war. Um, uh, increasingly, well, he's he's in the minority of officers who actually do resign. It, it does end up being a very small percentage who actually do go through with it in uh, in in the resignation emancipation winter of eighteen sixty two sixty three. 
Um, though the majority of Kentucky troops will serve out their enlistments and will not re-enlist, they will not veteranize, they just go home, a lot of his brother officers in the 20th end up uh, taking commissions in, uh, in uh, units recruited by the state of Kentucky uh, to stay within the state and remain uh, under the, the command of state military authorities operating alongside federal military authorities, but not directly under uh, doing a lot of anti-guerrilla duty. So they find ways not to participate in the, in the active front war. Buckner himself uh, like I said, goes home, resumes the practice of law, and then in 1865 he's elected to the state legislature uh, in a, uh, a particularly um, crucial uh, session that's going to set the, uh, the the tone for how Kentucky will live in a world without slavery. And, and their effort, uh, as you pointed, is to for for certainly those of his uh, conservative party and those who. who remain Democrats, even with its connection to the Confederacy, uh, they are going to live without slavery, but they're not going to give up white supremacy anytime soon. And they uh, they, they certainly make an effort to maintain that. Uh, let me change gears. We just have a couple minutes left. Uh, and ask a question going back to the beginning uh, of our mm-hmm. discussion. When you're talking about the Kentucky Governor's Project, uh, here on campus at East Carolina, we just had last week a seminar, uh, a workshop on digital humanities and mm-hmm. had speakers from all kinds of different areas. And my graduate students and I were discussing this today, and the presentations were all over the, the map. There are so many different things covered by the, the concept of digital humanities, but your project certainly to gather the uh, papers of Kentucky's governors would fit into that uh, definition. Do you see the future of Civil War studies moving in this digital direction? Absolutely, I think so. And, you know, like I've, I've said, really, all of my work has been shaped by the power of, of, of digital resources. You know, I, I started out uh, working on Ancestry.com by, you know, the, the only efficient way to, to look up 100 Confederate soldiers in a census record um, uh, relatively quickly. Um, and, you know, this is what I think our project is going to do um, really well, is not only is it going to be online um, and, and keyword searchable and, and, and able to view all of the images, uh, the, the, the real power of the project is through the annotation and networking we're doing. So um, we're concerned with the governors, yes, but we're really concerned at, um, at using them as, as, as using the office of the governor as a collecting point uh, for the voices of all sorts of Kentuckians, uh, people who write into the governor with their problems, um, and, and they are many, uh, as you might imagine, during the Civil War. But we get people from all over the state, um, uh, male, female, rich, poor, black, white, uh, free and enslaved, um, the, the whole gamut of society. Uh, the idea that we have then is to... Is to uh, to annotate each one of these individuals, to, to, to create them as a node on a social network and string them all together. Uh, so the same person you see on a petition um, of union men pleading to the governor for something, might, you might also uh, see, uh, uh, you know, asking for the pardon of, of his rebel son. You might also see uh, bringing in a military contract uh, for pork or horses or whatever else the army might need. Um, and so you sort of uh, can string these together and, and hopefully move a whole lot of data in some really neat ways to piece together uh, some connections uh, in Civil War society that we haven't quite seen before. Yeah, just as you described that, making all those connections by hand would be just unthinkable. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
to to try to catalog all that sort of material for an individual. Uh, certainly, the future of, of uh, history is becoming much more collaborative. These are things people can't do by themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're going to have to work together to do these sorts of things. Well, with just a minute left, the I really was was fascinated by this book. The, you mentioned briefly in the introduction uh, that as a, a very young person, uh, you heard the the rationalization. Well, uh, you know, some Kentuckians, some Union Kentuckians owned slaves, therefore the war couldn't have been about slavery. <laughs> uh, and and your argument here is is precisely the opposite. Uh, it was because the war was about slavery that some Kentucky slaveholders chose to fight for the Union. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, a fascinating thesis, uh, extremely uh, clearly argued and represented in the, the figure of Benjamin Buckner and the other people you describe around him. Uh, I cannot recommend this book highly enough. University Press of Kentucky produced it. Uh, I really learned a lot from it and enjoyed it and enjoyed meeting Benjamin Buckner and uh, Helen Buckner and the other characters uh, in it, and uh, I hope it has a lot of success. Thank you very much, Jerry. I I really do appreciate that. And listeners, you'll want to get a copy of For Slavery and Union, Benjamin Buckner and Kentucky Loyalties in the Civil War. And Patrick, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Listeners, as always, thanks for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.